You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. I am going to share with you a mind-blowing interview. I was actually invited onto the Fit Mom Life podcast, where we talked all about breaking free from diet culture. We had just an amazing conversation that I can't wait to share with you. And this sort of intersection of the same mechanisms that are happening in our brain when it comes to alcohol, how alcohol impacts your, your body, how it impacts your health, how it impacts your wellness and how these same mechanisms can be applied to food and to diet culture. And just thinking through all of these things, it it was a mind-blowing conversation. So I'm so excited to share it with you here, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Food Code. Liz and I are so excited. We have Annie Grace on the podcast today, who is the author of The Naked Mind, uh, which is a book about controlling alcohol. And I think much more than alcohol. I think it it gives great insight into Mm -hmm. controlling your mind around addictions and things that we normalize and things that maybe aren't great for our ourself, you know, and our life and things that we want to serve us. Um, so we are so beyond excited. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Oh. Good. Thank you. So happy to be here. Of course. Tell us a little bit, you know, if you want to do the abbreviated version, because I'm sure it's a very long story of how you got to this place, you know, where you started, how you started to realize that maybe it was something that wasn't serving you and how it turned into the naked mind and where you're at now. Yeah. Awesome. So I didn't, I didn't actually drink much in high school or college because I grew up in a unique remote situation where it was a one room log cabin without running water or electricity, but basically just because my parents were hippies and they wanted to live off the grid completely. And so they didn't drink. And when I went away to college, I didn't drink much. Then I got a job and my husband got a job in New York city. We moved to New York city. And I remember getting taken out to the bar and ordering a drink and it was $25. And I was like, Oh, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this anymore. But then a few months later, my boss actually came to me and he's like, why don't you come to happy hour? And I was like, I don't really drink. And he's like, well, it's not what it's about. It's about like getting your ideas showcased. If you're serious about your career, you need to be serious about, you know, coming out. And I was like, all right. So I had a whole plan. I was going to drink a glass of wine and then a glass of water and never get too tipsy. I even would go sometimes so far as to throw up the last glass of wine just to keep up with all these. They were all men. They were all, you know, 25 years older than me. And I just, you know, prided myself on being able to be in control Fast forward a decade and I had two kids. I had been promoted lots of times. I was now global head of marketing for the company I was working at. I was traveling around the world in charge of 28 countries. And I was drinking like two bottles of wine every single night, pretty much without fail. And again, I was like outwardly very in control, very had it all together, but inwardly just really stuck. And so I did what most people would do. I was like, all right, I'm going to just try to cut back, try to drink less. And it basically started an internal war inside my own mind, which is I was fine with drinking until I was trying to drink less of it. And then it was, uh, you know, rules, how much am I going to drink, break the rules, make another rule, break the rule, feel guilty, feel ashamed, um, say, screw it. I'm just going to drink, feel hungover. And it, it just started this whole cycle. And I stayed in that cycle for quite a while. And one day I was coming back from the UK. I had had a super boozy week over there, but my husband and kids were back in in Colorado and I was flying home. And I remember just like being hung over from the night before I'd had a drink at breakfast and just feeling like I'm bringing the worst of myself to them. They deserve so much better and feeling so disheartened. And I all the, all the typical questions I'd been asking myself were going through my head. What's wrong with you? Are you an alcoholic? What's your problem? Why can't you get it together? And then like this new question just popped in. And the new question was like, why, you know, why do I drink every single day? Why did it be that I used to be able to take it or leave? It It was no big deal. They didn't even care about drinking. Now it feels like literally the duct tape that's holding my whole life together what is going on? What gives? And I decided in that moment to actually stop trying to stop drinking and just to dedicate as much time as it took. I was like, I'll give myself up to a year 
to just find out why. And so I made a list of all the reasons I drink. I even asked my friends for all the reasons they drink. And we live in this great day and age where you can just get a scientific study off the internet for 50 or 150 bucks. And I just started going through every single one. I drink to relax me. I would read up on what alcohol actually does in the body. It doesn't relax you at all. It actually releases cortisol, which is the stress hormone. You know, I drink to have fun. I read up on what alcohol does in the body. It doesn't do that at all. It actually does the opposite and all of this stuff. And at every turn, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we don't know this. How do we not know this information? So at the end of that, it was probably 11, 12 months. I walked out of my office and told my husband that, he wants to drink with me again tonight's night, because after this, I'm not going to drink anymore. And he didn't really believe me. He was very skeptical, <laughs> but he's like, all right. So we, we split a bottle of wine. And then after that, I drink one more time. A few months after that, I did my alcohol experiment where I actually filmed myself getting drunk. But aside from that, I haven't had a drink now in nine years. And I don't, I don't call myself sober. I just say, you know, I drink whatever I want, whenever I want. I just haven't really wanted to drink in nine years. And the, I think the most interesting part is that I had all this information and I was like, other people need to know this. This is felt like it was so important. So I just found a way to like put my PDF out on a website. I wasn't even getting email addresses because I didn't even know how to do that or that you should. And, um, 20,000 people downloaded all this research, this very messy typo written research in like two weeks. And I started getting messages from all over the world from people saying, oh my gosh, this helped me when nothing else did. And they were just uh, so encouraging. And, and one guy, he was like, you should, you should make a book. And so I looked into it for a few minutes and I was like, oh, I can't, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, well, you can self-publish on Amazon. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to figure that out. So it took me another eight or nine months to kind of hire an editor, figure out how to make it work as a book self-publish it. But then in October of 2015, um, this naked mind came out self-published on Amazon and then same thing happened. It, it sold so many copies that it ended up going to auction with the big five traditional publishers and, you know, now has sold, uh, over a million copies. Yeah. I would say your vulnerability in that book, I think is a large part of your success yeah. because I know that I was sitting there reading it thinking, cause I used to work in the corporate world prior to Beck and I having our company now, Yes, yes, yes. Like all the boxes that you talked about in terms of, you know, even just normalizing alcohol, um, you know, as mommy juice, or it is what you have to do in the corporate world to schmooze, you know, with other people or whatever. You know, I also think about the part where you talk about, you know, we didn't even like alcohol, like it didn't even taste good, but we convince ourselves that this tastes good in some ways and how powerful the mind can be when, you know, we're trying to convince ourselves of one way or the other. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for your vulnerability, because I think, especially as moms, we both have uh, young ones. There were some parts in there that really hit hard, like the mommy juice thing. And we were actually just talking today uh, on a walk earlier, and we would love to kind of, um, I'm going to skip the second question yeah. and go to the, the third one here and we'll come back to the other one. But, you know, even for us as functional practitioners, so we are holistic functional practitioners, we coach nutrition, we know how horrible alcohol is to the body um, and the negative side effects of it. But the culture that we live in, and even within our own neighborhood, right? Neighborhoods, I should say, you're the outcast, right? I've had friends. You talked about your best friend um, from kindergarten. I've had friends tell me you're, you're, I don't know what we would do, you know? And then like, that's heart wrenching. And then also to think about, and then I would love to hear your side of this too, of like, well, wait a second, I'm still a person, even if I'm not drinking. And so what is this concept? Like in all of this research that you did, you know, talking with your friends and that mommy culture juice, if you will, mommy juice or whatever, the wine to de-stress and avoid our problems. What were some of the biggest eye-opening things that you found when you were writing the book? Well, I mean, specifically with the culture, it was interesting because that kind of came for me after I'd, I'd really put the book out there to some extent. I mean, some of it was as I was kind of editing it and stuff, I was having those experiences, but it didn't really truly dawn on me how much when somebody is worried for themselves, they're, they're not as much worried for you when you stop drinking as they're worried for themselves. And it's not even conscious, right? It literally isn't even conscious. What happens plays out like this. You go into a situation, someone offers you a drink. He's like, oh, I'm not really drinking. And then instantly they have this mirror that's held up to anywhere they're uncomfortable with their own behavior. And from now talking to 
literally thousands and thousands of people, most people are uncomfortable with their own drinking to some degree. There's very few people that I've met. And, and I know this is true because they'll come up to me and be like, oh yeah, well, I'm not worried about my drinking. I, I don't, you know, I, I almost never overdo it. And, you know, there's only been a few times and I'm, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty good. And it's like, they're looking for validation for that. Or there's, I mean, very few people are completely at peace in their relationship with alcohol. And so as soon as you are the one to stop, it's just like this mirror. And so how I get around that now that I know that and understand that is just with like all the pre-frame in the world, like, Hey, like I'm not drinking, but like you go ahead. What, what do you want me to get you? You know, like just really almost normalizing it and helping them feel good and, and comfortable. And that goes so far because if, and when they do want to think about it or question it, they're asking me, but it's only because I'm still there. I'm still connected. I'm still in the conversation, but I do think as the one changing, you do have to work a bit harder. And I'm sure you guys experienced this with, with nutrition as well, but any change, even if it's radically positive for the person changing is seen as a threat by everyone around them, because the, the things that they think are, you're going to be too good for me. You're going to judge me. I'm going to judge myself in your presence. Things aren't going to be fun anymore. And, you know, it just becomes, it just really wakens up our own insecurity. And that is just the reality of how it is. But when you can see it like that, you can have so much more compassion, compassion than, just feeling frustrated. We talk about this a lot with our clients in terms of, you know, when they're making radical changes, let's say they're, you know, going through a period where they're not having pizza because it really upsets their stomach. We do a lot with gut health and, and hormones, you know, and then they feel like they're the outcast and they have to answer all these questions. And what I just remind them is, listen, it's, it's not about you. It's about them wanting to feel validated in their decisions to consume things that are unhealthy and don't maybe align with where they might want to be in their own health journey, you know? And so I'm glad that you brought that up. And I, I love what you talk about in terms of the pre-frame, like even bringing a six pack and saying like, Hey, you know, here's, here's something for you guys. And then you're opening your kombucha, but the spectrum too, I think was, uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier this morning and I was like, wow, I definitely want to bring this up and have you talk about the spectrum. Cause you already mentioned it briefly, but when there is anxiety that happens, right. Whether it's around not drinking or just other change, can you share a little bit about the spectrum that you talked about in your podcast recently with, you know, going to that avoid then and kind of like completely cutting things off versus being connected and staying with that group, if you will. Yeah. And I think it, you really have to be very introspective in terms of like what's right for you and where you are in terms of your level of comfort, because you need to come first in this and that's just the way it is. And so if you are doing things where you're showing up in a way that actually is more triggering to you, or you're feeling, you know, more more vulnerable, or I think that you should err on doing what's right for you, but also understanding that like there's, there's friends that you were friends with because you drank together and they're not necessarily a ton that you have in common aside from the drinking. And I had that experience. And I think everybody who stops drinking does have that experience where you're like, wow, like, and it's nothing right. It's nothing wrong. It's just, that was really the glue that was holding the relationship together. And there isn't a ton there else. Uh, but then there's friends who, if you cut them out of your life, you would really feel that and, and you would really be saddened by that. And so I really like the concept of differentiation. It's a um, concept from family systems psychology from the 1950s. And it's this idea that peace exists on like in the middle of cutoff and fusion. And so you think fusion is all my friends are doing this. I'm going to do it too. Even if I don't want to, I'm just going to sacrifice myself to be part of the crowd. And then cutoff is forget them. I don't even want anything to do with them because I can't even be around them because they're all doing this. And I'm just going to totally, you know, it's have so many boundaries that I'm going to be in an ivory boundary tower. And both of those positions have a ton of anxiety because even in the cutoff, we think there wouldn't be anxiety, but there is because those people creep back into our minds or we feel lonely. And so really the differentiated position of being fully connected yet fully self is that position of being able to show up with that six pack and be like, Hey, here's this for you guys. I've got my kombucha. Like you're still fully connected. You're there. There's no judgment. They understand that there's no judgment. And, you know, in some of those relationships for me, 
it's literally just been conversations that you're like, okay, we're definitely adulting now because this is sounds like the most adult level conversation ever, but it's like, Hey, I, I know I'm not drinking anymore. A lot of people don't feel comfortable with it. Let me tell you what that means for me. That means for me, I have no problem with people drinking. That means for me that I'll be the first to pick up the bottle of wine on, on my way over. But it also means to me that I still want to be invited, you know, and I, I know the tendency is like, when you have friends who get sober to protect them by not inviting them because they're, I mean, I had a friend who she's like, oh, we were going to invite you to our friend's birthday, but there's going to be shot skis there, which are basically in Colorado. That's like a ski that you line up with shot glasses on it. And everybody takes the shot at the same time. And she's like, so I didn't know if you'd want to come. And it was again, one of those conversations, like, no, I'd always rather be invited. Like, you know, and, um, and just having those conversations, because if you don't, then you just drift into people trying to overly protect you or overly protect themselves. It's all subconscious. Nobody's really being intentional about it. And so I think as the one changing, you know, it's up to us to, to sort of instigate those, those types of very mature <laughs> conversations where we're like, yeah, I still want an invite because yeah. it will naturally happen that people will stop inviting you unless you are proactive about it. And I think that's kind of the key to being. Which yeah. is so sad. Well, and I think it, like any problem in a relationship comes down to lack of communication. You know, it comes down to you don't say anything because you don't want to seem weird or different or make yourself that outcast. And they don't say anything because they, again, usually want to protect you or they don't want to feel bad about themselves doing what they maybe have a little insecurity around. And so, yeah, I, I see that a lot. We call it sometimes like no man's land too, where you're trying to make these big changes and maybe you're losing some friends that you only had because you drank, but you haven't fully developed maybe a different set of friends that more align with what you're doing and, you know, you feel more comfortable around. And so it's kind of this middle ground and a lot of people tend to fall back into their old habits because that's just comfortable, right? It's toxic, but it's comfortable. Um, and that's, you know, the struggle that I think a lot of people have around alcohol, around food, around, you know, whatever drugs, whatever it is. I'd love for you to talk a little bit around how you help people or how you went through starting, how common or what you do to work through kind of those quote unquote, I hate to say like relapses, but like times where you don't stick to your word, times where you wanted to go to, you know, the wedding or the party and not drink. And then you did. And the mental battle that ensues from that. So how do you guide people through that? Or what was your experience with it? Such a good question. And I think before, before I answer that specifically, just one thing on what you said is I really like how Mark Manson frames it of like, you know, you can ask anybody, what do you want from your life? And everybody will say like, well, I want to be happy and in love and fit and have money and everything else. And he goes, I think like, that's just almost BS, right? Like a better question is like, what are you willing to do for that? Like, what, what are you willing to, are you willing, if you want to, you know, be fit, are you willing to be the person who is making the choices day in and day out? If you want to, you know, be financially well off, are you willing to be the person who takes the risk to either start a business or ask for that promotion? Like, and so I think it's, it's such a fascinating frame because we want certain things, but sometimes we're so almost dishonest with ourselves about the discomfort that might have to come between us and that thing we want, because none of these things that we really want are in our comfort zone. And so when you're talking about just like, it's the default to just to be comfortable. I love the idea of just bringing light to that and saying like, look, you're, you are choosing, even if you don't really consciously realize it, choosing comfort is also choosing, you know, maybe foregoing some of those other things you want. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to mention that. And now I totally forgot the, the real question. Oh, yeah, No, I, I was asking around, like, how do you guide people on starting? And oh. in turn, a lot of times, I'm sure not many people, maybe there's more people than I think, not many people are like, okay, I'm going to stop. And then they have no issues with it, right? It's more, I'm going to yep. stop. And then I had a wedding and I gave in and now I'm, I'm mad at myself or I feel gross or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you find successful dealing with that? 
So uh, we actually reframe the entire thing. So we don't call it relapse. We call it data points. And I do a teaching where I basically like explain how a computer would learn to play chess, which is you would program that computer with the rules and then that computer would make a move and then it would be the wrong move and it would make another move. It would be the wrong move, another move, the wrong move, eventually would make a move and it would make some progress. But nowhere along that learning and iteration period is the computer like, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. I can't believe you. What's wrong with you? And it's only, only humans that we do that. And when we can remove that out of it, it becomes something that can be really transformational because in each one of those mistakes that you made, there's so much information, there's so much data. So you, but you close yourself off to that when you judge yourself for it. So when you're judging yourself, you, you have a predetermined idea. I did something wrong. That was bad. That was wrong. And there's no room for curiosity, like curiosity and judgment have a really hard time coexisting inside the mind. But if you could say, okay, it was data. I drank at that wedding. I didn't want to drink. I overdid it. I didn't want to overdo it. It was data. So now let me get curious. Like, how can I learn the most from it? How can I mine the data? How can I understand what was I feeling beforehand? What was I feeling during? How do I feel now? Was it worth it? And when I can do that without judgment, the chances of me having another data point actually go down quite a bit. And um, so, yeah, I really, I really encourage people to think about it as just data, data, data. You know, it's um, all about learning from everything that happens and valuing compassion over judgment for yourself, because compassion and curiosity, I think, are the the two things that have you continuously moving forward in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about, um, you know, some of the strategies that we've used in the past for people who binge eat, um, it could be the same for binge drinking, but like even looking at like what was happening in their life multiple days ahead of that time that they then caved, it can be really insightful to them to really determine like, what were some of those little triggers that then just led me over that tipping point into the bag of Doritos or the alcohol or whatever it might be. And so I love that you brought that up too, of being curious and, you know, just kind of journaling and thinking through leading up to during and after what were all those feelings? Because a lot of people, that's, I think where the most uncomfortable work is the more uncomfortable work than even just saying no to the beverages or something, you know, in the moment. Um, and then a lot of people miss that. So please replay this part and listen to her on, you know, being curious. Um, and, you know, I know that in, in the book, you talk a little bit about that pause versus totally, you know, stopping concept, because I think a lot of people know that they have room for improvement with an addiction, alcohol, food, whatever that might be. But to say that I'm never going to have uh, wine or pizza or whatever, I keep bringing up pizza, pizza sounds good today, apparently, um, but to, or chocolate, right? I'm never going to have that again. Sounds so like daunting and grueling. So can you enlighten them a little bit upon that concept? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so let me kind of back up a little bit and, and just give an overview of how I think behavior change is best, how it works the best. And, uh, this is what I use at this naked mind. And I call this the liminal process and liminal just meaning the space between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. So that liminal space, that in-between space. And so it's really a four-step process for alcohol. And the first step is to end cognitive dissonance. And so in our year-long coaching program, we actually have two months. The first two months are called the pause because in that moment, we stop trying to stop drinking. Because if you remember in my story, that cycle of starting and stopping and failing and starting and stopping and failing, like it was eroding all of the confidence all of the like self-love, all of these things that are actually key to stopping over the long term. And those things were just getting obliterated. I was, I was at a point where I didn't even like to look at myself in the mirror. Like I was so full of self-loathing and frustration. And why am I, you know, seemingly together in all these other areas of my life? And, and this is the strange exception. This is the thing that is just such a disaster. And, and so when we are working with somebody who is just in those throes of all of that cognitive dissonance, which is internal arguing, internal pain, the first step is really to, to end that. And, and we do that by stop trying to stop drinking. And in the beginning of this naked mind, it's the same thing. I say, you know, don't even, don't even think about stopping until the end of the book. 
just read the book sober so that you get the information, but like you can don't worry about not drinking while you're reading. It's, it's important that people kind of clear that space. So that's step one is end cognitive dissonance. And then step two is to rewire the subconscious belief systems. And so step two, I have a 30 day free challenge called the alcohol experiment and every single day, instead of just a, a program where you would get, you know, just a challenge, you're just trying to white knuckle it every day. You're getting a video that has a truth about alcohol that is actually different than what you currently believe. And for me, it was so subconscious. I believed that alcohol relaxed to me. Like I believed the sky was blue. It was fact. I, I didn't even think to question it because I was like, that's just true. And I also believe that if I don't drink, I would be missing out. Life would be less fun. I'd never be able to loosen up as easily in the bedroom. I'd never be able to network. Like it wasn't like, I thought maybe these things are true. They just were true. And so the idea of not drinking was so daunting because it wasn't this choice between, you know, maybe I don't even want this. No, I desperately wanted it. I thought it made my whole life better. I thought everything about alcohol was lifting me up, not tearing me down, except I didn't like to be hungover. And I thought that it probably wasn't healthy for me. But in terms of my personal desire for alcohol, it was a 10. And so what I was doing is I was literally putting myself on an alcohol diet every time I try to stop. And I was actively trying to not do something that I really wanted to be doing. And it was very painful. And so when you do this step two of rewire the subconscious belief systems, that's through science, that's through information. There's lots of different ways to kind of drop below the conscious mind into the subconscious mind, um, repetition, invoking emotion, invoking authority, like scientific studies, things like that. And then what people experience through my book and through my process is that they actually don't want the, the alcohol anymore. They have this other part of them that's like, oh, why would I even do that? That makes no sense. And so then you move to step three, which is adopt an experiment mentality, which is where the data points really come in because you're saying, okay, I'm going to just try this. I'm never going to say I, I'm never going to drink again because I'm not going to know I'm successful till I'm dead. And I don't even think that that needs to be anyone's goal, right? Your goal should be whatever works for you, drinking, not drinking, drinking on occasion, just in a place of peace. And so I think you know, it's, it's a much better question to say, would I be a bit happier drinking a bit less than do I need to stop drinking? Do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? These questions, they just invoke such negative emotion. And actually I think are, are kind of even counterproductive because we put off even answering them until things get worse. And so they almost, you know, predicate this, this rock bottom experience. And so as you're going through this experiment mentality, you're just trying things out. Like maybe I'm going to try a, a sober happy hour, or maybe I'm going to go out and try to do a week without drinking. And you're just making goals that you can win. And you're trying to put a target that you can hit in front of you. And then uh, really moving on to step four, which is, is the crux of so much of all of our drinking in the first place is to build a life you don't want to escape from. And that process is all about, all about really, you know, understanding like this very mean voice in your head and how you can inject it with how you can just handle being human more or less. And so I think all throughout that, this idea of a pause is not only in the sense of like the first step in order to get off that cycle of breaking promises to yourself, but also this idea of it never has to be forever. In, in fact, I encourage people never to even make what I call a behavior-based goal, which is a goal about how much or how little you're going to drink, because in general, those make us feel badly. And feeling good is such an important part of being successful, right? We, we're successful at things we like doing, we enjoy doing. And so I, I actually say you should make an emotion-based goal, which is how do you want to feel in your relationship with alcohol, which could be, you know, I want to feel like it's small and irrelevant. I want to feel like I can take it or leave it. I want to feel like um, I'm free, whatever that is. But if you go for that, then all those all those relapses, first of all, there's no there's nothing in there that says you, you need to be sober or never drink again. And again, I think those things are, are pretty counterproductive. But also all those relapses just become data moving toward where you want to be instead of framing it as, okay, I have to stop doing something I really want to do. Yeah. I love this so much more than AA because I think so many people have such negative labels on themselves. And I, I know that I've 
listen to you talk a little bit about that as well, but, um, you know, just hearing you say it again, to me, it makes so much sense. And I'm, again, I'm thinking about a lot of our clients who, if we were to take this and put this from a food perspective, it would be the same thing. You know, it's irrational to say that you're never going to have a chocolate chip cookie again. Maybe, you know, you're thinking about, oh, that, that time that I, I had two or three and then my stomach hurt and you're getting, you know, gathering a lot of this, um, data for yourself to remember that for next time, maybe have a bite or two, but I don't go into the the whole bag of it. it is really important because everybody's in a different place in their life with whatever the vice is. Um, and so I just love that you don't have those labels because then again, if somebody does have a data point, right, then they don't have to say that they relapsed. So can you share any other th- things, you know, related to the story that you, you talked about with, you know, your girlfriend and going to AA, was that a really, um, big turning point for you to go down the path that you did in terms of the research around what you thought alcohol was bringing to you and like just taking a completely different approach to this path of minimal drinking or free from drinking or however we want to deem it instead of sobriety. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, it's, it's interesting because why I didn't feel AA was really an option for me was twofold. So first of all, about six years before I stopped drinking, I had a girlfriend and she came over to my house and I like went to open the bottle of wine and she's like, Oh, I'm not drinking anymore. I went to an AA meeting and I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, so I can't drink anymore. And I was like, Oh my gosh, well, I drink with you all the time. Like, what about me? And she goes, Oh, I learned that I was born this way. And she started to give me some examples of things that she, as a quote, alcoholic would do that I didn't do. Like she said, will you you finish other people's drinks after they get up from the table or, you know, these other, other little filters. Right. And I didn't say yes to any of those filters. Those weren't true for me at the time. Some of them, not ever, but it didn't mean that drinking as much as I was drinking was good for me either. In my mind, I was kind of like, okay, well, if I'm not an alcoholic, first of all, good for me. I can keep on drinking, no big deal. And and second of all, I guess I guess that's not an avenue in which I can get help. And it just kind of, again, not really intentionally just kind of formed in my mind that that just wasn't for me. Uh, also, my brother, he had been in and out of prison when he was younger, and he had been forced to go to AA meetings. And so he had told me, uh, my my parents are hippies, right? So they put a lot of stock in like what you say to yourself and how you talk to yourself and affirmations and, you know, positive like vibrations and different things. And so this, we always had this idea of if you say I am something, it means something like you shouldn't use that lightly. And so when he said, you have to say, I am an alcoholic at the beginning of every meeting, I was like, huh, that that doesn't feel true to me. And it really doesn't feel true to me now that I have a friend who told me I'm not an alcoholic. So it was kind of those two things were combined for me. And then when I actually decided to do my research, I don't know, it was so strange. I I really had kind of felt like I'd reached the end of my ability to just diet myself into submission, you know, alcohol diet, like just force myself to do this. And and I felt like I was ready to say, well, if if I research all of this and alcohol really is just this best thing ever, and I really am going to be worse off not drinking it, which is what I truly believed at the time, like my life would really be worse. It would not be a good, you know, it wouldn't be a life worth living. Then I'll just keep drinking it. But I was that surrendered to almost either outcome. I just wanted to know the truth of why I was drinking so much of it, even when I didn't feel like I wanted to, why, you know, willpower wasn't in sense, just failing me. And so it didn't even cross my mind to walk into an AA meeting at that point in time. I think your process is much better. So, well, yeah. And I think that it's more approachable and it's, I don't know, I feel like the whole concept around AA and I, obviously it helps lots and lots of people. I'm not, I don't want to like shame it for any reason, but for you to take on this identity of an alcoholic, I I think is, it's just really heavy. And I feel like it brings other problems, right? It brings other, like anytime anyone has this like really strong identity with something like that, or, you know, a disease or a condition or whatever they're dealing with, you become in this like victim, right? You're, you're now almost a victim to that condition um, versus 
being in ownership of your life and of your mind and what you choose to do, which is why I love how you approach it in terms of like, I'm not saying that I'm one or the other. Like this is, you know, I, I choose I, there's a really great uh, quote that I heard actually this morning that talks about like in life, you get to choose your regrets. You can either mm-hmm. have the regret of not going to the gym or you can have the regret of not going to the theme park. Both of them have regrets, but which one do you feel like you can live with more, right? Which one, you know, serves you better? Um, and it, it was a, like a really interesting quote and a really interesting, and I almost like feel like I need to sit with that quote for a while and be like, what does this mean to me? Like, <laughs> um, but- <clears throat> I the coming back to the concept of being uncomfortable, because I think that unfortunately that can also keep people or throw people off guard when they are trying to maybe go to an event and gather a data point and maybe try to go into that event not wanting to drink. Like I, I think of weddings. I think wedding is probably one of the biggest ones that people probably, you know, struggle with because you're there for a very long time. There's lots of opportunities to drink. That's really kind of the focus during certain points of the wedding, like the cocktail hour. Um, and so in those events, what do you recommend in terms of tools? Because I think a lot of people have are very hopeful going into it and then it gets really hard. And maybe we aren't prepared mentally for it to be that uncomfortable. Um and maybe don't have like a plan or aren't conscious enough in those places. But what do you have any like tips per se to recommend for people that are trying to endure events like that? Yeah, it's funny because I'm remembering my first wedding and it was a long time after I stopped drinking. I think it was maybe over a year, maybe even longer than that. And I remember it, it being hard. It was actually so long that I had a YouTube channel and I, I made videos like the night before, like this is what I'm doing. I'm at my first wedding. I feel really out of place. I feel really uncomfortable. I remember that night. I also had my first non-alcoholic beer, not because I had thought anything was wrong with non-alcoholic beer. I think a lot of people get a lot of use out of it, but I just hadn't, when I realized I didn't really like the taste, I was like, why am I going to just have empty calories on beer, like just didn't make sense, but I felt so out of place that I went and like ordered a non-alcoholic beer. But then I noticed that people couldn't really tell it was non-alcoholic. So then I felt more out of place with it in my hand. And I was just, I was just in my head the whole time. And I mean, I was literally an influencer on this topic at the time. So it had been a significant amount of time. So yeah, weddings, just to say that they are, um, you know, it is a is a unique experience in, in our culture. Uh, and I think that one of the things that I would do is I would take a few moments to myself whenever I needed it. We were, the wedding was in new England and it was in this, like this area that had a lot of like, you know, even there's usually a place to walk outside or to go and sit somewhere. And so I would just go on these little sort of walks or even sit in the bathroom and just sit there and be like, Hey, what do I really want here? Like, what is most important to me? Like, what am I, you know, how, how am I going to feel in the morning? If I, if I go ahead and have a drink and the commitment that I made to myself actually in that wedding, which again, I've never really made a commitment that absolutely I'm not going to drink no matter what, because I think for me, I, I have such like a rebel personality that when I say never, everything in my body just is like, okay, well, let's see. I want to do that immediately now. So it's like just almost counterproductive. So I didn't make a never not going to drink no matter what commitment for that wedding. Although I do think that's helpful for some people, but for me, it wasn't helpful. What I did do is I said, I'm not going to do anything unconsciously. Like if, if I make any decision, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit there and think through it in its entirety before I do it. So if I get so tempted, I'm going to have a drink, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit there and be like, how is tomorrow going to be? How is the next day going to be? What are the like second and third order consequences of this decision? And that was my commitment to myself. And so if I felt like triggered or tempted, I would go and I would just sit through what, what will this be? What will this mean? Because I think when we just drift into it, that's where, that's where, um, you know, we really, find ourselves waking up the next day, having all sorts of regret because we didn't, we didn't really take the time and the space to not say no to ourselves. At least for me, that was true. Um, I do think there's some power for some people in just saying a firm decision, no matter what it's a no, even if tonight is absolutely miserable. I think a firm decision can sometimes be radically helpful. Um, but that wasn't my experience of that wedding. And the other, the other piece that I would say is that the most important thing for me though, is actually not if you drink or don't drink at the wedding, it's how you treat yourself the next day. 
um, whether you drink or not. And so when I'm actually coaching people going through experiences like this, I'm like, okay, like, is this pressure that you're putting on yourself going to be helpful or hurtful when you're in the throes of making this decision? And for a lot of people, like the pressure combines to make the whole thing even more painful. And so I was like, so just take the pressure off. Just know that if you haven't, like nobody's counting days in any of my work, you know, there isn't this, this perception that if you have a drink, you've thrown away years and years or decades of sobriety. It's, it's like, okay, well, if you have a drink, then you'll figure out like the next day you'll be like, okay, so what did I learn? Like, we just kind of take the pressure off those situations. So they don't feel like such a do or die situation. And then I think people end up not drinking because there is so much less pressure on it. If that, I know it's counterintuitive, but. Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I really like the concept of taking a moment. Like I picture myself Mm -hmm. because Liz and I both constantly have the discussion of like, I texted, I was at a wedding a couple weekends ago in Philadelphia and I've had a, you know, with both food and alcohol, I've had a very, I would say linear relationship in terms of, I haven't completely given alcohol up, but compared to, you know, five years ago when I would restrict, 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 and then I'd binge and be so unbelievably hungover and hate myself. And like those moments happen so much less frequently now. And the severity of them is so much less. And a lot of people think like, oh, it's still, to me, that's a win. And we still have the conversations of, I texted her after the wedding in Philadelphia. And it wasn't even like, I was super hungover the next day. I was functioning. I felt okay. And I tend to get very, very bad hangovers. But I was like, I don't know why I, like, I need, why do I do this? Like why I'm, I would have been so much happier and if I can picture myself in those moments of going to the bar, getting a glass of wine, if I had instead gone to the bathroom, sat there for a second and been like, what do you want tomorrow? What do you always feel like when you do this? You know, and I think that can be really, really powerful. And I love that tip. Or so the walk, you. you know, um, we both love like the pause and yes. taking walks many, many times uh, throughout our day for many different reasons. And I think that can be really helpful just to separate yourself from that environment because you're being influenced always right by other people um if if you just fall prey to that and let that happen and so i think those are some really good tips but again going back to what you mentioned earlier i love that you're not saying we don't count days in you know the work that you do and ultimately it comes down to like again what do you truly want um in your life and i think that's uh, just a very unique way of framing it and again, why we wanted to have you on, because I know so many people, maybe they haven't, um, you know, read the book and all of you should, because I would, I personally would say not to audible. I think you need to, like, for me, I had a highlighter pen and paper and I was like circling things. I was like, yes, this is me. Cause I mean, Annie, you really get it. And you, you talk about from the corporate perspective, from the mom perspective. And, and I just think it's, it's so important for women in our society, um, and, and men too, but, uh, to, to read some of those stories that you shared, cause there's, there's a lot of pressure. And, and maybe it's just more, uh, because we're female that we feel it more, uh, maybe men have just as bad, if not more, I don't know. Um, I can't speak for them, but I think that, um, you know, those are things that can be really, really helpful. And, and I do want to just kind of start to, to close this out with asking an additional question on a piece of advice. If you have somebody who's close with you, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a very close friend and you see this is becoming an issue. It's negatively impacting them. Maybe their health, uh, you know, maybe they are continuing to get promoted and, you know, on the surface doing all the things, but you know that internally things are not going well. Where do you, you know, kind of, um, recommend that people start with that? Cause I think those can be some extremely, extremely challenging conversations. Yeah. It's really hard. I think that, um, we actually have, and I'm, I'm happy to gift it to your listeners. If they just want to email at hello at this and ask for our helping a loved one course, it's, it's just a free six video course, uh, for helping a loved one. If you feel like somebody like just to navigate exactly that, But in summary, the main thing is to understand that nothing that you will be able to do or say is going to probably make any real difference. And so we feel so out of control with this because we feel like, oh, well, they they don't even see it. The truth is that generally when somebody's really over drinking like that, they see it and and they're hating themselves at least as much as you are feeling frustrated with them, if not significantly more. 
And so I think just the being there for someone in compassion as much as you can, but also balancing that with, you know, protecting yourself. And if you need to take yourself out of kind of the situation, if it gets to be really, you know, unhealthy, or you're being kind of taken advantage of in the sense of having to do stuff for them, drive them home when you wanted to, you know, enjoy yourself that night or whatever the case is. So I think it's like a balance between taking care of yourself, understanding that there's nothing that you can really do to force them to change and understanding that people change much more through compassion. So if you were going to have any sort of conversation, you know, it would be like, how are you doing? Like, how is, how has everything been going these days? Like, are you, are you more stressed than usual? Cause I noticed like you're drinking a bit more than you normally do, which is obviously, you know, it's fine. I just wanted to see if like check in on the symptom, on the, on the cause, not the symptom. And that could open a door to have the conversation, but it's, it's definitely a tough one because we want to, we like to live under the illusion that we can do or say something to change other people. And it's just generally not true. Yeah. Try to save them. Well, yeah. And I, obviously you care about people and, you know, especially if it's someone really close to you, like a spouse or a parent or, you know, a best friend or anything like that. It's, I, I feel like a lot of times, like you mentioned, until they see it, it can be really hard to get someone to change because then it's just an attack, right? It's, 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 you know, oh, well, what do you, why, why are you saying something? Are you think someone's wrong with me? And then maybe get more in their head. And it's just, it's a really walking on eggshells type situation. I think a lot of times, um, but I like that approaching the symptoms, not the root or approaching like, why are you okay? Like, you know, that type of thing is. Is very yeah, it, like minimizing, like no big deal about the drinking, but is everything going okay? Because yeah. you know, in my experience, I generally drink and I always approach it. If I feel like I have bad news to deliver and this may not be available to someone, if they don't have the story I have, I obviously have a story here. So it's, it's available to me, but if I have bad news to deliver, I have something that's like not going to be pleasant. I always tell it in my own story. Like, Hey, gosh, are you, are you like, is everything okay? Are you feeling stressed? Because I know for me that when I was so super stressed, my drinking went up and, um, you know, no big deal, but I just wanted to check in like, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. Things. Yeah. Yes. I think today is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Um, and like Liz and I have mentioned multiple times, if you have not go get this naked mind. It is an amazing book. And the um, alcohol experiment. That's yes. free. Just go online. Yes, right we will now. link all of that out. Uh, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners where they can find you? Any other like big pieces that maybe we didn't touch on today? I feel like we talked for a lot, but you have a lot of knowledge. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, no, I just, I would just end with, if you're curious about your own drinking, um, yeah, that question is something wrong with me or am I an alcoholic? I think they're really unproductive and maybe just ask yourself, like if you'd be a bit happier trying to drink a bit less and treat yourself with lots of compassion and lots of curiosity, because at the end of the day, every single drinker I know, every single ex-drinker I know, um, the truth was we were doing the best we could with the tools we had and our society has given us the tool of alcohol and it is a wildly ineffective tool for the things that we are dealing with. And so- you know, I, I really, truly believe it. And I can, I believe, prove it neurochemically, but if you're over drinking, it is not your fault. Um, again, you've just been kind of conditioned that this is what we do to deal with these sort of certain things and alcohol is addictive to the human brain. And so what's going on with you is probably beyond what, what you understand. And it's, it's not your fault. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because there's something wrong with you. Uh, again, you like literally, I would even describe, go so far as to describe over drinking as an act of, of self-love because you really are just trying to make it through the day. And our society has given, especially us as women, this one tool of booze to try to handle our lives. And it's just an ineffective tool. And the way to find your way out of that is through lots of curiosity and compassion first for yourself. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you awesome. so much. Um, side note before, and so we'll cut it there. Do you offer, I'm just thinking about some clients that we have. So again, in the functional world, we do have some clients that uh, actually are on certain prescription medications so that they do not go back and drink. Um, within your year long membership, do you guys do affiliate partnerships? Is there someone that 
us on your team that we could make an introduction to directly or is just, you know, website? Yeah, we definitely do affiliate partnerships. Um, so, uh, I can go to your website and check out if it's on there. I don't even think we have it on our website because I'm like really super selective because there's, you know, yeah. you know okay. um, but, uh, Mallory and I'll tell her to expect your email. Um, but here's her email. It's Mallory at this and she does all our affiliate stuff. Okay. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. We, uh, definitely could use that. Yes. Yeah. We have, um, you know, we deal with a lot of liver. Actually, we just gave away a scholarship and the girl that we gave the scholarship to, we did a, like a surprise, like call with her to record it. And part of the story she didn't tell us in her video submission was that she was given six months to live because of her alcoholism. Yeah. She was in and out of rehab a lot. She had, mm -hmm. so lots. she's been five, five years sober now. And so anyways, yeah, she battled drinking though for 13 years of really heavy alcoholism. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, yeah. And so, so anyway, sometimes on our, our blood panels that we do like GGT markers and stuff, like I've had to have some really tough conversations and then people will then open up and say, yeah, I have, you know, definitely have this and I'm actually on this prescription medication or I've considered this prescription medication, those types of yeah. things. So I would love to have another resource that we could share with them. Um, yeah. I'll definitely tell Mallory to expect your email. Okay. Awesome. And is it, um, M-A-L-L-O-R-Y or M-A-L-O-R-Y? M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. Yeah, right. I dropped it in the chat, but you might not be able to see it, but it's M-A-L-L-O-R-Y at thisnakedmind.com. Okay, perfect. perfect. Thank awesome. you so much, ma'am. We will email the team when we um, have everything up on YouTube and social media and whatnot. We really appreciate it. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how This Naked Mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. Thank you.